Every person has a natural sense of justice and injustice. This is true of the youngest of children. If I had a dollar for every time the phrase, that's not fair, was uttered in my household, I would be a rich, rich man. And that's just between me and Andrea. I mean, factor in my children, and oh man, we'd be loaded. If there's one thing that we as people cannot stand, it's when we know that the undeserving are gaining and the deserving are suffering. That the undeserving are prospering and the deserving are not prospering. We, we sense that deep in our soul. There's something about that that is absolutely not fair. And we can identify it from the time we first learn those words in the English language. We're able to pick it out. Now, it might come as a surprise to you, or perhaps it won't, that the Bible does not say about fair and unfair that that's just in your imagination. In fact, the Bible is quite candid about the injustices in the world. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite of it's all in your imagination. It says instead, yes, the wicked frequently prosper. The righteous frequently suffer. But even more than that, the Bible is going to call that an injustice. And identify absolutely that is not fair. So then becomes the question, well, in the midst of that, what are the righteous to do? If you call yourself righteous, you identify yourself with Christ, then what are you to do? I mean, look at the world around you, and you can see it's pretty obvious that often the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. What do you do? In Psalm 37, David is going to address the entire congregation of Israel and invite them to understand what the Lord is saying. He's addressing the whole congregation of Israel and he's dealing with exactly that issue. Why sometimes the wicked prosper, often the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And what are the righteous to do when they suffer unjustly and the wicked prosper? Let's look at our text this morning in Psalm 37. I will warn you, it is quite a lengthy text, so bear with me, we're going to read it all. Of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only 
to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those who weigh, whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in, the evil, in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he, when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look, up, look on the, when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in, their, in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us understand what's written here. Give us insight into the words that you've put before us that we might seek to not only understand them, but actually apply them to our own lives and to the world around us that we're facing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a tradition of the last at least couple of years since the COVID era of going through a psalm a Sunday during the summer. 
As far back as April 19th, 2020, to be exact, I preached Psalm 1. And that psalm that I preached there, that sermon was titled, Two Paths. Psalm 1 is very simple. It's six verses, if you'll remember. I, I know you'll remember it when we read it in just a second, but it's six verses long. And it's very simple because the first three verses of the psalm, the psalmist tells us that the path of the blessed man is like a tree that blossoms in water. And the last three verses tell us about the path of the wicked, and it tells us what the path of the wicked is like, and very simply, it's not pretty. So let's, let's read that. He says, Blessed is, this is Psalm 1, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you can just listen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, reading Psalm 1 is like reading a proverb, essentially. The proverbs are very straightforward. They say what is true and what is false, and they state it matter-of-factly. And, and it's written kind of like a proverb because it, it tells us matter-of-factly, in no uncertain terms, that the righteous will prosper, and if you choose wickedness, you will be driven away like the chaff, of the, uh, like the chaff that the wind drives away. So it's very simple. You choose righteousness, you're going to succeed. You choose wickedness, you're going to be driven away with the wind. Pick a path, essentially. But in Psalm 37, we see maybe part two of that. Maybe a, a, a counter-narrative that we often observe from time to time. And that is that often the righteous don't quite succeed like it seems like they should in Psalm 1. And the wicked often do succeed like they shouldn't in Psalm 1. In this psalm, the author is, is speaking to an audience who is really concerned as they look at the world around them, they look at the land around them, and people are occupying the land with them that are not supposed to be there, pagans. There's some people within their own religion that are worshiping false gods, and that they don't think really should be the case. And, and so it seems like it's not playing out, and it's a concerned audience. And for the most part, this audience picked righteousness, like this Psalm 1 tells them to. And yet, they're suffering. And then there's a whole host of other people around them who picked wickedness, and they seem to be prospering just fine. This seems to be a great injustice. And so the, the psalm is the righteous response to the times. How is it that you, living as a righteous person, are supposed to respond when all of the people around you are acting wickedly and they're prospering? What are you supposed to do? Do you join them? Do you give up all of the things that, that have been promised in Psalm 1 when it doesn't appear to be going that way? Now this psalm is long, as you can see, and it's, it's a bit scattered, meaning that he doesn't exactly just say, point one, here it is, and then now point two, here it is, and then, haha, point three at the very end. He doesn't quite do it like that. 
it sort of goes back and forth, and it's a, it's a little bit uh, maybe disjointed, as we might say. But it, So this morning, what I really want to do as we go through it is just to give you a sense of what's being said so that you can feel what's really at stake here in this psalm. And then at the end, apply it to where we are as people. So hang with me as we go through this. I think it's really three big sections. All right, And each is helping us understand that godly perspective, keeping a, a godly perspective on the world around us when things don't quite go the way we think that they should. So first he says in verses 1 to 11, there's a very simple message that he gives to you, and that is, calm down. Chill out. Just relax. Calm down. When... when when the unrighteous or the wicked seem to prosper, and you, the righteous, seem to be suffering, what am I to do? Where do I look? And he says, first things first, calm down. Now, I'm a husband. And I know that my wife loves it when she's mad about something and I tell her, calm down. It works every time. I take it by your laughter, some of you husbands in here know that I'm being sarcastic, of course. It doesn't work at all. But that's exactly how David opens the psalm. You, you see, yeah, he says it in biblical language. He says, fret not yourself. So husbands, that's what you should say instead. You should say, baby, fret not yourself, all right? Uh, <laughs> it leads only to evil. Fret not yourself. Uh, no, he opens the psalm with exactly this. That's what he's telling the congregation. Chill out. He uses this term, fret not yourself. He uses this term three times in the first eight verses, which tells you this is the theme of the first section. Chill out is what he's saying. It means don't get angry, don't get excited, don't get hot under the collar, as it were. As it were. Now, as you probably experience with your spouse or, or maybe your kids when you tell someone to calm down, it doesn't actually do much good. It doesn't make much sense to them at all, and it's not much use. So David doesn't just tell us to calm down. He actually gives us things to do instead. So not just calm down. Here's what you actually need to focus on. This is what he means by calm down. And the first thing he says, that you need to have a Godward attention, that your attention needs to be focused on the Lord. A Godward attention. Look at what he says in verses 3 to 8. First he says, trust in the Lord in verse 3. Then look at verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, trust in Him. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Verse 8, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it tends only to evil. The essential point that he's getting at is very simple. The Lord takes account of every injustice. He takes account of every injustice. And so what does that leave us with? That means that no one will escape his justice. Not one person will escape any injustice they've ever done. Not one person. He takes into account every bit of it. So what does that mean then for us, but that we are to, are to wait patiently for him to act? That's the essential message that he's getting across. 
So with many of these commands, there's also promises that follow after them. So he, he tells us, you know, wait, but then there's, there's these promises that follow after that. So verse 4, as an example, commands us to delight ourselves in the Lord. And the promise that follows after that is what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, prosperity gospel preachers jump all over that verse. Oh, man. That's like saying, sick him to a bulldog when you give that kind of promise to a prosperity gospel preacher. He will rip that kicking and screaming out of Scripture, out of context, and just apply it. As an example, Joel Osteen, in his book, Daily Readings for, from, Becoming, Be, from Become a Better You, uh, Become a Better You is a book he wrote, then he wrote a devotional about the book he wrote. I give up. Um, in it, he promises this. And he's, he's posing this as a conversation. This is a conversation between, I, I don't know if this actually ever happened or if it's just, you know, supposed, but it's a conversation between him and someone else. And the person says to, to him, to Joel, well, I don't think I'll ever get married, Joel. I haven't had a date in so long. I don't think I'll ever find someone who would love me for who I am and with whom I would be compatible. Then Joel responds to this person, Who told you that? God said, When you delight yourself in Him, He will give you the desires of your heart. See what I mean? So, if I'm to understand what he's saying here, according to the prosperity gospel preachers, what David is promising you here is that if you delight in God, then God will in turn give you a date that you haven't had in so long. It's so patently false. It's obvious even just reading the black and white. He's saying David is promising a cure for singleness here in this passage. This, this is what David is... Imagine for a second, living in North Korea as a Christian and reading this psalm and hearing Joel Osteen tell you that what David is promising you is a date. You think my problem is a date? My problem is that I'm living under a totalitarian regime who is putting to death Christians. And you think my problem is a date? My problem is that I'm living under a dictator who is depriving his people of food. And you think my problem is a date? How can you not grasp that it doesn't fly anywhere but America. A date is a first world problem. It's not a luxury anyone else has. And anyone reading this passage is coming to an entirely different conclusion around the world. And are seeing in it such a rich promise of God. I just realized this is sitting on my chest. I'm going to... 
go ahead and put this in. Robert Maxwell is like breathing a sigh of relief back there. He's finally got the microphone in. The rookie move, sorry. Obviously, the biggest problem with interpreting the text this way is right on the face of the words. If God, if you are delighting yourself in the Lord, David is commanding you, set your heart's affections on God Himself. That's what He wants you to do. That's what David is commanding you to do. Delight yourself in the Lord. And in turn, God will give you the desires of your heart. You see what he's doing? If your delight, if your heart's desire, your heart's delight is God, then what does it mean for God to give you your heart's desire? What is he giving to you? Himself. He's giving you himself. He's bringing you into a relationship with himself. It's not a date with someone else. It's not good grades. It's not any of those things. He's giving you God Himself. That's to be our desire, and that's what God is promising. You want me? You want to seek after me? You want me to judge the wicked? You want to pursue me? You want to come after me? I'll give you me. So what the Bible affirms in so many other places. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. David's not promising that you'll get a date or good grades or that you'll become rich. Remember, this whole psalm is about the wicked prospering while the righteous suffer. And David is promising here that if you trust in the Lord, if you find your joy in Him, then there will be a day where the wicked come to ruin and the righteous prosper. The righteous will be exalted. What are you to do in the meantime? Look at verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. The first thing He tells us is to calm down, to have our attention in a Godward direction. But then it's not as though we're just to sit there twiddling our thumbs, waiting on Jesus to return or just waiting on the Lord to do something. It's not as though He says that. He actually tells us that we also have to have a godly action, that we have to do something. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. We're to be active in blessing the people around us. We're to do the work that God has put us here to do. But then he gives the the negative of that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Give up the anger because it leads only to evil. Or what James tells us in James 1, 19 and 20, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I've used this metaphor a number of times, and I I hope it's helpful to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then God has given you a garden in your life full of your responsibilities. He's he's put you in this garden, and He's put walls around this garden. And in this garden of your life are all things that you're responsible for. Your kids, your family, your work, your finances, your vote, every hour of your day. Everything in your life that you are responsible for goes into this garden. And your mission is to bring all of the things in your garden into submission to Him. Now, the garden has weeds in it. It's got all kinds of weeds. It's not really producing fruit at all. 
And your job is to submit everything to Him and see the fruit that He produces in the garden. And the reason that you're to do this is because it's His garden. He's the landlord. You are the tenant. Right? You are, you are leasing this garden from Him. It's His garden, and He expects fruit to be produced from it. Now, the difficulty that David is, is seeing and he's kind of honing in on, and I hope you are too, is, is that we live in a world of all kinds of injustices. And we see these injustices flying at us in every direction. We see the wicked prospering all the time. We see righteousness being thrust aside. And, and it seems like nobody is caring about this. And all of these things, for the most part, are happening outside the walls of our garden. And we're tempted to fret over those things. We look over there on the other side of the garden we say, well, there's weeds over there, and those weeds are going to make their way into our garden. And David is telling you, calm down. Work in your garden. Don't worry about those weeds. Are they going to make their way over into your garden? Maybe. What are you going to do? You're going to weed the garden. You take care of your responsibilities. This is what God has given you responsibility over, and He hasn't given you responsibility over those things. And it's a tough thing in a world of social media because it tells us that everything is our responsibility. When you actually have nothing to do with all those things out there and you can't do anything about it except pound the keyboard in anger. That's not producing nothing. You ain't weeding no garden. You're actually throwing weeds into the world. All you're doing. And yet it tells us that we, should, we have to be concerned about those. But in reality, he's given us responsibilities that are ours. Things that we are responsible for and they're right in front of us. And so David is pointing these out and he's saying, look, you do the work that God has put you here to do. Go about the work that he's put before you and do it as though you're working for him because he is the owner of that garden and you're responsible for it. And then and only then, are you properly waiting on the Lord to resolve all the matters? Have a Godward attention. Commit to godly action. But then he says, hey, you have to have God-centered patience. Throughout this psalm, there are five times that David says nearly the same thing. And it goes like this. The wicked will be cut off. He says that five times. And then five times, maybe six, he says the righteous will inherit the land. And they're, they're usually right next to each other. He says that five times times throughout this psalm. So what that means is that's a refrain that you're supposed to pay attention to. It's like a chorus of this psalm as he bounces on down the passage. Look at verse 9. The evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Now we're going to talk more about this in a minute because he gives three of them in the last part of this passage. But suffice it to say that he's calling you and me to patience. Be patient. Wait. doesn't mean you don't do anything. You actually have a Godward action. You have Godward, uh, you, you look Godwardly. You, have, you commit to Godward action and, and, and you wait for God to act. But the next thing that this psalm calls us to do in response to injustice is be confident. Be confident. From, from verses 12 to 26, David goes back and forth from the ultimate outcome of the wicked to how much better off the righteous will be in the end. But what's important that you see is that in verse 12, there is a switch that takes place in this psalm. 
want you to look at it really closely. There's a switch that takes place in this psalm, starting at verse 12, where he's not really commanding us anymore like he was in the first 11 verses. Do you notice that? Now he's not, he's not really doing that anymore. Now he's describing how the truly righteous will respond to getting the short end of the stick. So here's the wicked, and here's what they do, and he goes into great lengths to describe what's taking place there with specific actions that the wicked are taking against the righteous, but he backs up and he says, here's how the righteous will respond in the midst of that. How are they to live in the midst of the persecution of the wicked? And first, they'll clearly live by faith. Look at verse 12. The wicked are scheming against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at them. But what happens in verse 13? The Lord laughs at the wicked because He sees that His day is coming. Then in verse 14, the wicked take up arms against the righteous. And I think the idea here is that a system of justice is perverted so that instead of punishing the wicked and helping the poor, they're punishing the righteous and bringing down the poor. It's, a, it's an inverse of what government is supposed to do. And, and, and so he's you know, criticizing that. They're taking out their bows, they're stabbing them. But what happens in verse 15? Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Justice system will be turned back on them. There's a message to the righteous who, do you notice, never seem to be the ones in power. You ever notice that? Just look around the world. Do you ever, do you ever notice that the righteous never seem to be the ones in positions of authority? Which politician or world leader or president, or king, would you want to see your daughter bring home for Thanksgiving? Any of them? You got one? I mean, there might be a few politicians out there that you're like, I think they're a pretty good guy, but I guarantee you can name them all. On one hand, you could count them. The rest of them, you're like, man, they always seem to gain from being in office unrighteously. They always seem to have ulterior motives. They always seem to be the evilest people you've ever met. Don't they? How come it is that we don't really see the righteous in positions of authority and power? It seems that invariably power is wielded in this world by the unrighteous who use their powerful positions for unrighteous gain. So, where does that leave those that follow the Lord? That's the question. Where, where does that leave those that follow the Lord? In the same place it left us before. In a position of waiting. So the souls of the martyred Christians in Revelation 6 are calling out to God under the altar. And they're saying, but Lord, look at the wicked they're prospering, and they're using their power to take advantage of the poor. The wicked are using their power to persecute your saints. How long, O oh Lord, before you avenge our blood on the earth? How long is it going to be? And his response is just a little longer. Just a little bit longer. And again, the refrain to the saints crying out for God to avenge their blood is, be patient. 
Just wait. Your confidence is in the Lord, knowing that He's actively bringing all things to His conclusion. I know many of you are worried as you look at the state of affairs that we're in today. I think probably for the most part everyone in here is worried as we look around the world today. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get political at all. But economically, if we're just being honest about the time that we're in right now, economically, the poor are going to be the first to be crushed by rising inflation. That's just matter-of-factly. They're going to be absolutely crushed. And there seems to be no end of it in sight. Further, let's just take it one step further. If you advocate right now for a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality, you are ridiculed, laughed. You, I don't think you could serve in a public position in any way in office if you just... You really advocate for biblical truth. Can you imagine being interviewed by the Senate there as you're trying to be confirmed to a panel position? First of all, being appointed, but then actually being going through that kind of process and saying, I, I believe everything that the Bible says, and just opening up and just reading the text of Scripture? Can you imagine what they would do to you? Oh, man. It'd be brutal. Ugly. That, that's where we live in today. That's the world we live in today. You're, you're laughed out of the town square. You have no place. I read an article just the other day where the author identified as cake gender. You heard me right. Cake gender. And, and literally, I'm, I'm not joking about this. They said cake gender is when you feel like you have a light and fluffy disposition. I'm being, I know it's humorous, but I'm being serious. They, they literally said that. And it's apparently part of a whole range of understanding called Xeno something. Cake gender, where you have a light and fluffy disposition. Now look, zoom out globally. And things are much worse. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Imagine being a citizen of North Korea, much less being a Christian there. Imagine what you're actually going through. So you, you factor in all of these things, and we look at them, we watch them on TV, we, we read them in news articles, and we, we get overwhelmed by them, and frustrated by them, brought to tears even by them, and just baffled by some of them, and don't even understand them. Now... Reread verse 13. Look at verse 13. Really look at it. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. He laughs. Now you understand, there are real and unspeakable tragedies that the righteous have suffered at the hands of the wicked throughout history, and even worse is a culture that would, would actually advocate for these atrocities, that would call evil good and good evil. But we're not to take the seeming silence of God during the midst of those atrocities as inactivity. In the meantime, that may mean 
that as a righteous person, we're on the short end of the stick of all of that. That we end up being the ones shortchanged in this life. But listen to what he says. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Make no mistake, every sin is accounted for and every person will be held accountable. But we live by faith that the Lord sees and will judge. And the worst thing that you could do, ever possibly the worst thing that you could do, is be on the wrong side of His judgment. But how else do we live in the midst of that? As we wait patiently, how do we live? We live generously, He says. He mentions specifically generosity twice in in regards to the righteous in this section. The first is in verse 21. Look, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. The second is in verse 26. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. More than anything, I want you to see this whole psalm, what it is. Like zoom out and just look at what he actually is saying. First, there is the reality that's being depicted, and that is that the people in positions of power are not acting righteously, quite the opposite, actually. They're taking advantage of the poor and persecuting the righteous. They actually plot to undermine a godly worldview. They take money without expectation that they'll ever pay it back. That's theft. They're stealing. That's the worldview that's being depicted here. It's very dark, isn't it? Look at it. It's incredibly dark. But the second thing that I want you to see, then, is the disposition that the righteous are to have in the midst of the darkness. A carnal mind would tell you, things are dark. Take all your money, put it in a mayonnaise jar, screw the lid on tight, bury it out in your backyard so that no one will ever find it, put a bunker in the ground, take your family guns, ammo, and tons of beanie weenie and just cram them all in there as much as you can stand and just wait for Jesus to come back. That's all we can do at this point. But that's not what the psalm says. That's not the position of the righteous person. In fact, he's saying that he wants, what he wants is for you to see that someone who is confident in the Lord is someone who acts, someone who continues to live, someone who is patient, and someone who doesn't look at his bank account, but is generous in his his giving. Who actually, with an open hand, deals with his money. He's not afraid of losing it. How do you know if the person is waiting on the Lord? How do you know if the person truly trusts that the Lord is going to act? Well, he's calm, first of all. Second, he, he works in, he, in the garden that the Lord has put him in. He continues to wait on the Lord. But then we also see he's generous. He, he's, not, he's not stingy. He's not greedy. He's not a workaholic. See, all of those things are testifying this life is all I have. This money is all I have. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to hoard it as closely as I can. Even if it means forsaking my family, I've got to build a nest egg for myself because who knows when things will get really bad. It's a sign that that 
this world is all you get. If that's what you really believe. But if you see a person who's generous, who holds his money loosely, what is he telling you? I'm not worried. I don't care how dark it gets. I know the Lord is in control of all this, and he will supply my every need. He says, live generously. And the whole psalm has been telling you that the wicked are going to see their day come to ruin. And you, righteous person, are to have confidence in the Lord that he's going to bring it to an end. Now, there's no better way to communicate your confidence in the Lord than to refuse to let the times dictate your mood. Look at verse 21 again. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. Now look at verse 26. The righteous person is ever lending generously. Who's he he loaning his money to? He's loaning his money to the wicked who have no thought to ever repay. And what does he do? Well, fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Holds his money tight. No. He keeps lending generously. Why? He lends generously, but his kids, instead of starving to death, they grow to a ripe old age because the Lord provides for him. You, you get the connection? That's what, he, that's what he's saying here. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Delight in the Lord. Listen to the reminders that are in this psalm. If we were to strip everything in this psalm away and we were to just give the bones of this psalm, listen to what he says. Calm down. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him. Be still before Him. Calm down. Don't get angry. Forsake wrath. Calm down. Wait on the Lord. The wicked will perish. You are better off with little. What you have will last forever. His day is short. Be people characterized by generosity. That is this psalm in a nutshell. You feel it? You see what he's moving us towards? Then how do you respond to injustice? Well, there it is. First, calm down. Put your attention on growing in your relationship with the Lord. Do the work that he's put you here to do. Be patient. Second, be confident. Trust that the Lord's going to handle this too. Live generously. And finally, take the long view. Take the long view. Verses 27 to 40 is a summary of what he's been saying throughout this entire psalm. Three times he comes back to this refrain in this section alone. He's mentioned it twice already, and now he comes back to it. Look at verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Again, in verse 34, the wicked are cut off. The righteous inherit the land. Again, in verse 38, the wicked will be cut off. Two other times in this psalm, he comes back to the same refrain. Verse 22, those blessed inherit the land. Those cursed will be cut off. Verse 9, the evildoers cut off. Those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. Again, he reiterates that in verse 11. And this might sound familiar to you. He says, the meek shall inherit the land. Now, the Israelite community that's living under David, that's singing this psalm, that's hearing this from David, are rightly concerned, very concerned, in fact, because as I said before, they're surrounded by pagans, they live in the midst of Gentiles who are, who are occupying the land with them, they cannot clear them all out, they've never been able to clear them out, it's the same this to this day. 
And some of their own Jewish people are worshiping false gods. Yet there they are in the promised land. So their concern is, will we actually inherit this land or not? Are we actually going to live here? Are we going to inherit this land? And the refrain from David is, yes, you will inherit the land, and it belongs to the meek, not the wicked. And then a thousand years passes and, and after David writes this psalm, and Jesus comes onto this. And he begins his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he begins what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3. Or, yeah, Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, what does he say? The earth. Well, that's different. He took it right from Psalm 37. But he, he made a slight alteration, and he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, what you need to know is that in the original language, land and earth are the same word. So Jesus takes the promise of the righteous, the meek, inheriting the land and repurposes it and says he goes a step further. He's doing something funny here. He goes back into the psalm. He takes the line from it and he says that the meek shall inherit. But instead of saying that they shall inherit the land, he says the meek will inherit the earth. And then he goes on to say in that same sermon, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. See, Jesus is taking this psalm. And he's applying it to a New Testament community who follow after him. Because here's what you need to understand. When it comes to the meek inheriting the land, that's not you. You're not the meek one. I'm not the meek one. None of us in this room are the meek one. Who is the meek one that inherits the land? It's Jesus who, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's accused falsely of his crimes, and there is crucified on a cross. Here's the bitter irony. When it comes to fairness, Jesus is the only one in history who could ever truly say, that's not fair. You see, when it comes to the just suffering and the wicked prospering, that's seen no greater than in the cross of Jesus Christ as he sits there on Calvary, crucified not for his own sins, but for my sins. The righteous is there crucified, while me, the unrighteous, is the one that nailed him there. You want to see the unrighteous suffer? Go back 2,000 years just outside the city of Jerusalem and watch Jesus of Nazareth be crucified. See, Jesus was the meek one. And what happens as a result of his crucifixion and his resurrection? Well, he comes to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Who inherited the earth? Jesus. 
But what then is the promise for all those who are included with Jesus? You inherit everything His righteousness inherits. Those who submit their lives to Christ, who follow after Him, now have all the blessings that are promised to us in this passage. So on the cross, God was just. He's giving the one deserving righteousness our punishment. He's just, but He's not fair. So He is actively working with His wrath, pouring it out on the shoulders of Christ. He's just, but He's not fair. And He's giving the one deserving the punishment, me, Christ's righteousness instead. So in Christ, we now have the promises of eternal life. But more than that, it's not just inheriting the land. It's inheriting the earth. The call to you is to be patient. To wait on the Lord. To not expect that anything in this life is ever going to really go your way. But instead, it's probably going to work against you. But remember what he says? Blessed are those who, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Christian, how are you to respond? What's your life to look like in the midst of injustice or anything that might be going on in the world around you? Be characterized by the meekness of Christ. Look at what he's doing, walking to the cross. And what does he say to anyone who would be his disciple? Anyone who come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The call in your life is to pattern it directly after Christ. Follow him. Be meek like him. And there, gain a righteous reward after this life is over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we as your people would be characterized by meekness. Not by boastfulness, not by vindictiveness, not by being self-serving, but by meekness. Pray that you would empower us to do that by your Spirit working within us, that we might look to Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, that we might follow him in his meekness. In everything that we say, that we think, and that we do, in Jesus' name, amen.